Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's always great to be with you. I appreciate that. And I know I harp on this a lot, but I just have to mention it to you, and I need your reaction. It, it is, it's not just that we have a state of Israel that's declaring candlelighting times, which is miraculous for anybody from previous generations, but today they remind everybody the, the halacha, the ritual procedure of lighting Hanukkah candles before Shabbat candles. You just got to stop for a minute and, and realize how miraculous that whole thing is. It is just as every morning when they say it's filot in the morning when they start. And it's things that people take for granted. Uh, you know, the nature of a Jewish state. And while, you know, for those who are not observant enough and all of the other considerations, this is a reminder that Israel is, it conducts itself, it lives by a Jewish calendar, you know, that uh, everybody from America who goes there knows that all of a sudden you live Jewishly, whether you're observant or not. Right. So incredible. Really remarkable. And this is a great holiday to remind everybody about that. All right, let's go on to the uh, news of the day and of the week. Uh, many people are curious about your reaction to the life and legacy, especially vis-a-vis Israel and the Jewish people, of President George Herbert Walker Bush. What could you tell us? Well, I did work very closely with uh, President Bush because uh, I had already been in the President's Conference then. And look, I'm not going to say it was always an easy relationship. We had very tense moments. But I also saw the other side and both as a person and and uh, in some of the policies that he issued. You know, the most contentious moment, public moment, probably came with, during the loan guarantee fight when we were trying to get the loan guarantees for Israel to absorb the uh, Jews who were coming out of the Soviet Union in very large numbers. Right. And Prime Minister Shamir and President Bush, you know, could hardly see eye to eye. He was probably 5'3", and he was six one or something. So even on a physical level, they couldn't, but on a political level as well. And um, I was the one who organized the day in Washington where uh, when the president got up in, at a press conference or if following a meeting and said that, uh, you know, I'm the one lonely man against a thousand lobbyists, right? Uh, which was uh, certainly the lowest point, I think, publicly in, 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 in his presidency, although we had other contentious moments. And um, we met with him about a, a several weeks, maybe a month later, and bef- uh, the president's conference had a meeting with him. And before that, Shoshana Cardin and I were invited to meet with him and some of his key people. And she went and she said, Mr. President, you're a fisherman, and you know that when you draw blood, the sharks come out. You drew blood, and the anti-Semites came out. And he looked at him, bewildered. And he said, I, I never realized this. I didn't know this. I, nobody told me. I, and he started crying. I saw tears in his eyes, literally. And he said, I've lived my whole life differently. I never would have done a thing like that. And he could not stop. And we went out to the meeting with the full conference for 20 minutes. He just couldn't get off the topic and just kept, you know, repeating how, how that he was shocked that he didn't know that the impact and he and he went on to publicly try to at least moderate it and mollify uh, some of the uh, impact. You know, it's a- uh, but I will tell you that on on other occasions as well. One time we left the meeting 
uh, at the, in the Oval Office, just with a few people, a few key leaders, and I was invited. And on the way out, he, he pulled me back in, and he said to me, you know, during this meeting, you, you raised this issue of Jerusalem. He said, it's your issue. It's not your community's issue. Mm-hmm. And I said to Mr. President, how can you say that? It's the one issue that you invites every, unites everybody. We're all committed. He said, no, because if it was, I would hear from them. And I don't. I hear it from you, but not from them. And I realized then when the President of the United States doesn't know our positions, it's our fault, not his. Right. And I can tell you other stories about the, you know intimate moments and and times when he took us up to his den, kicked off his shoes, and started going through the pictures of his grandchildren. And he said the thing that he was most proud of in his life was that his children want to come home. And the the, the you know he he wasn't uh, warm and effusive as some other presidents in times, but. My father died. He wrote me an amazing letter, and then when we met at the White House, he took me off to the side and put his arm around me and started talking to me about what it means to lose a parent at any age, at any circumstance. Mm. So he wasn't as portrayed. He was certainly not an anti-Semite, as some said. He had around him guys, you know, really tough guys like Jim Baker and others with whom we had, you know, often uh, difficult uh, moments and difficult relationships. But the fact is that when it came to the rescue of Syrian Jews, which we negotiated, and when I wanted, and with Ethiopian Jews, which we also negotiated with them, and I went in to meet General Scowcroft, who was his chief of staff, uh, and asked him to send to, to allow the Boschewitz mission, Senator Rudy Boschewitz, who was then in the Senate, to go to Ethiopia because we had this 48-hour window of opportunity, if you remember, to get the Ethiopian Jews out. Mm-hmm. And Skokoff turned me down. And he got, at that moment, as he said no to me, the president called him. And he got up and he said the president was there, and I told my people, sit, don't get up. And we sat on his sofa as he left his own office. And I don't know why. And I just said to him, Mr. can you ask the president one thing? Can he afford to have pictures of Ethiopian Jews were killed in the way that the pictures of the Kurds that was on the front page of the New York Times that day, because you said no. And he looked at me in shock, maybe a little horror. And the people, and he walked out, and we stayed in his office. And the others with me said to me, what made you say that? And I said, honestly, I heard it when you heard it. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm laughing only because I've heard you tell this story. And Skokov came back. And Bush overruled him. <laughs> Unbelievable. And that Shabbos, that, that weekend, Boschwitz was in Ethiopia, and that's how the deal was done. I'm laughing because I remember you telling this story as if God put the words in your mouth, and and you had never. I, I can't tell, tell credit that God is using me, but I'm telling you honestly, there were several occasions in critical moments. To say, I'm telling you honestly, I have no clue. Yeah, and that was a very special moment. And um, you know, it's funny on the on the the one lonely guy in Washington thing. I was discussing this with Mayor Weingarten, and ironically, you you just said that you know, he tried to walk it back. And it's funny because we we were talking about how, in retrospect, it, it's not as outrageous a line as 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 we thought back then. And it and it may not have had the the biting intent that we think it, it, it had back then. And based on what you're saying, in terms of his regret, that that's all true. He. Uh, 
He, well, he did have a biting effect. I mean, it did. No, meaning intent. It was a rallying call. Right, but he didn't intend to. Meaning, meaning the what the, you know the the motive behind it. I'm saying it was an it was an emotional response. Right. Of, of I mean, he had a contentious relationship with Prime Minister Shamir. You know, who was very dogged and very uh, committed to his positions. Although he gave in to the Madrid uh, conference. Right. Uh, and also, I mean, Bush was very helpful in, in, in the, the Bush administration in the rescue of of, uh, of Jews from Russia. And I remember, you know, some critical moments where um, you saw the other side. And, and I told Walton, I said to people, clearly, you could see this is no anti-Semite. We had, we had difficulties. I'm not denying it. And mm-hmm. there were times when some of his people were very difficult to deal with. But the fact is, if you look at the totality of the record, it betrays that that accusation. And how do you deal with with those who are around him or other leaders? In other words, at times, and especially with Baker, frankly, uh, you knowing his attitude and the way he, um, how tough he was on Israel. At times, you probably wanted to take the president to a private room and say, you know, you're surrounding yourself with somebody who does not, who doesn't act the way you do, and is not as diplomatic as as you are. And and likely may not feel exactly the way you feel, you know, about certain foreign policy situations. That must be frustrating when you have to, when 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 that you know figure is standing between you and ultimately the president of the United States. Well, I can tell you there were many times when we did talk to the presidents about people around them, and and many times they were taken aback by things that they did not know. Um, it was not so much with Baker. We had a, a working relationship with Baker that was often very intense, but very direct. And he didn't mind the challenges that we made to him because we did not as a personal accusation, but on a factual basis. And, you know, Dennis Ross used to describe the meetings between us as a ping pong match, you know, back and forth, back and forth. He said, you could get dizzy. And, uh, but I think he respected the fact that we, we could make a case based on America's interests, Israel's interests, the, the issues, and not on the personalities. He, right. you know, made some comments that were uh, very difficult to accept. Um, and, and, and this is not really his eulogy. It's, this is my fault. <laughs> my fault. This is more about President Bush, but now I'm so curious. Uh, so would you would you then classify Baker as a respectful sparring partner, or that's giving him a little too much credit? Oh, he was certainly respectful sparring partner, but, um, you know, he was very blunt, and I think that some of his views were uh, were uh, troublesome. All right. And lastly, in terms of President Bush, based on what you're saying and, the, and how emotional he can get and how nostalgic he can get, the portrayal of him at the funeral being the family man that he was and the caring person that he was, frankly— when it came to uh, you know to to the downtrodden and underprivileged, uh, those are pretty accurate. It seems. Yeah, well, they were definitely accurate. Uh, you know, I saw. I mean, I didn't see him every day. We saw him several times a year. Right. But it was, um, you know, it was a different. You see presidents differently when when they have moments when, you know, they put the guard down. And once they learn to trust you and know that it's not going to be in the press the next day, and that they can that your your goal is not for any grandstanding, but to get an issue, something accomplished. You know, with Syrian Jews, they told us, you know, wait, wait till uh, December, and December we'll be able to do it, uh, et cetera. And during the Hanukkah party, what, you know, the Bush one was the one who started the Hanukkah party. Mm. And I was at the first one. In fact, I think I'm 
only one who's been at every Hanukkah party since they started in, uh, with Bush one, that the, um, I went up to, pres- to Vice President Quayle and I said, you promised us that you would start moving, that you would do this. And they said, yes, December 6th. And I said, well, it's December 8th or whatever. And they looked at me and they followed up right away and they, you know, played a critical role in that. Interesting. So Reagan never had a Hanukkah party, huh? Reagan was the one who launched Jewish Heritage Week at our request. And it was at that when, you know, it, it the first one where he made a formal announcement, it was a big press conference, a big ceremony in the White House, that uh, Bitburg happened at the same time. Right. So the meeting got overshadowed because of the Bitburg issue, and most of the time we spent with him was on that issue. Right. Ah, I feel like I'm back in the 1980s. All right, let's get back to 2018. <laughs> the United Nations has uh, uh, rejected the measure condemning Hamas. Now, Danny Danone, the ambassador from Israel to the U.N., was on just about a half hour ago and explained this to us. Uh, so there was a vote that it's got to be a supermajority of two-thirds, which barely, barely passed. And then the actual vote was 87 to 57 with 33 abstentions. So officially... The measure to condemn Hamas did not go through, but he, I think, accurately has portrayed this as a victory. Would you agree? Well, it's good to put a positive spin, and, and uh, you have to know that it went through two stages. The first stage was to um, a, a procedural stage that was introduced by Bolivia with some of the Arab countries that required a two-thirds vote. Right. Had it been just the normal majority, they, it would have passed. Right. Because more votes for it than against it. Uh, and remember, there were 23 who who were absent, I think, and 33 who abstained. Right. So I think it was that's about 57 itself. Yeah. And uh, and then that vote passed 75 to 72, pretty close. Mm-hmm. And then they went to the to the full vote. And and you know the the resolution itself was simply a description of Hamas as a terror organization, something most countries recognize. All the European Union uh, went for it. I think it was a disappointment for Nikki Haley because it's probably the last vote or maybe the one of the last votes that she will cast. Uh, as you know, they named uh, Heather Nauert as her successor, who was a spokesperson at the U.N. The resolution itself, the fact that the uh, U.N. can't bring itself to pass this resolution, it passed more than 700 against Israel, uh, Nikki pointed out, and not one against Hamas. So when they talk about their commitment to fight terrorism and how you get still these um, automatic votes in, in the United Nations, it's, um, it tells you that, the, that there is change, but it's very slow. And at least on a, as a partial moral victory, the fact that, that they had a plurality of the votes shows some progress. Do you agree, as Danny Danone told us, that years ago, or he affirmed after I asked him, that years ago... A lot of these countries, in a, in a similar resolution, likely would not have voted for it. And this time around, we saw South American countries and others uh, who are normally not on that side uh, come out and uh, vote against Hamas. Yes, of course, it's, it's true. And uh, But you have to remember that many of these countries are also facing the terrorism threat. <laughs> That's and, true. And, and, you know, that, that this is a self-interest, or should have been a self-interest right. vote uh, for all of them, that... Um, you know that if you're you really want to fight terrorism, don't encourage them. Don't show that you can't condemn them. I, mean, I don't think that it would have had much of a of a practical impact as much as it would have been a moral declaration for the United Nations. And it tells us uh, 
you know, that body still is riddled by the problems uh, that we have so often discussed uh, on the air, yeah. but that we have to redouble our efforts to, to line up as many countries and, and to switch them as we can. And part of it is to expose them to Israel, to bring them to Israel. Donnie has done it. We have done it to, to, to um, at least show them the truth on the ground. The same body that uh, was the messenger to give us a state of Israel. Sometimes it's hard to believe. Uh, Heather Noward, what do you know about her, and uh, what do you think in terms of the position of, uh, about her filling the position as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations? Well, we, we don't know much about her personal positions and uh, how strong an advocate she will be, but all the general um, uh, assessment is very positive and that she's been working, you know, for Pompeo at the, and for the State Department, a spokesperson, uh, very capable. And uh, overall, those who know her say very nice things, very positive. You know, on paper, historically, if someone said we're sending someone from the State Department to the U.N., we would not be happy about that. That is true, but you have some really good people. There's a new appointment coming up that is a very positive one, dealing with Middle East affairs at the State Department. Um, and I think, you know, you have a, quite a number of people there who are good, and you also still have people, carryovers, so many carryovers from previous administrations. But the policy is set by the secretary, the tone. And in this case, you know, the secretary, as has been true of, of recent secretaries, they operate rather independently of the State Department body. Right. And the, you know, I think uh, Clinton did it, certainly Kerry did it, um, I think that many of them, you know, operate with their small cadre of people, uh, and that the State Department it doesn't help morale there. It doesn't help, uh, and and that's why so many positions were left open, because and you see this the Secretary Pompeo traveling all over the world um, with his, his small crew, and he's obviously somebody with a lot of experience has taken great positions, and uh, we're very happy with it. But it's it's a different. Um, it's different than it was in the past where the professional body and there you used to have so many Arabists and people who served in Arab countries who were trained they, they all seem to come out of one cookie cutter uh, that is not true today. Mm, interesting. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at com on the NachumSegal Network and of course in the beloved NSN app. I remind everybody Give your year-end donations and your Hanukkah donations to us at the Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting to keep JMAM going. Go to fjbunity.org, and we wish everybody well on this Erev Shabbos Hanukkah, which is also uh, Rosh Chodesh, a very, very big Shabbos coming up. It should be a peaceful one for everybody. All right, so we have uh, other... I, I, I want it Before we get to the north, tunnel operation, etc., let me just ask you this procedural thing, which I, I honestly don't remember if we've discussed this or not. The, and I, I just want to understand it in the context of the elections. The president of Israel, we know, has the right, once an election has ended, to decide which party should then try to form a government, correct? In other words, right. there have been times when a party did not, and I think Netanyahu was the beneficiary of this, where the party did not win the most votes, but yet was chosen by the president to try to form a government, correct? Right, because he, he consults with all the parties and sees who's the most likely to be able to form uh, a broad coalition, so it's not necessarily the one that gets the most votes. Right now, it's once the one has the likelihood. Now, once that happens, it, true or false today that the president of Israel can choose who leads that party? 
in the attempt to form that government. The reason I ask, of course, is because there's this, I don't know, this this rumor going around that one of the reasons that the prime minister is trying to delay this election is that right now he might suspect that because of everything going on behind the scenes, the uh, the uh, convictions, etc., that it's possible that Gidon Saar and the president of Israel will have some type of plan where instead of the president, uh, if he could, would win the election, instead of the president... Uh, giving Netanyahu the task of forming a government, he would actually go to his number two on Likud, in this case, Gidon Saar, and offer it to him to go and lead a government. Is that is, is that accurate, what I'm saying? Uh, well, first of all, you know the relationship between the president and the prime minister has, is very contentious. Right. And uh, it's public, so it's not, not, not revealing much. But um, uh, And then the prime minister sort of indicated that he thought that there was a conspiracy between them. It's been uh, both of them refuted it. I don't think that that there's been any substantiation of that. It is unlikely that the president would bypass the leader of the Likud, assuming they would get the most uh, votes, most mandates, as the polls uh, show now. Uh, it might have been a preemptive move on the part of the prime minister, you know, to go public with it and to to, to make a uh, charge, the accusation. Right. Um, but it, it, you know, the president, the president whatever their personal feelings, uh, has to be guided by the practicality. Nobody likes to see Israel go through these extended periods of negotiation the way they, and as you remember in the past, where they would go to one party, then they went to another party, and the third, to see who actually could form a government. And if they can't, they have to go back to elections. So the, the president's role really is to be pragmatic and to look at who actually can get a 61 vote majority or more than that to uh, to form a government. All right, so to think that the prime minister would delay uh, seeking early elections for that reason, the one I described, it would not be it would not would, would likely be unfounded. I, I think it would be the opposite that the earlier he does it, the less organized any opposition would be. I think he has uh, other considerations. I think you know the investigations are probably something that way over him, but I don't think are, are going to be determined in and of themselves. Um, I think that he sees himself in a very strong position, and none of the parties really could challenge him at this time. There's nobody else who has emerged. So I think he's likely to go, to, if there is a war in the North, he will go to elections after that. Right. Or, you know, all of these factors, where you, you, you and all the candidates will position themselves to where they are the strongest. I don't think anybody now, and you saw that um, Bennett, all, despite all the threats, nobody wanted to bring the government down. Right. All right. Now, I suspect that even though we found out about it this week, that people like yourself and others in the know knew about these tunnels up north probably for a while. You don't, you don't have to tell me if that's true or not. I'm just, <laughs> I suspect that it is. Um, but it becomes public this week. Uh, coincidentally, that you know the, that the news coverage case, you know, gets front page attention. Um, meaning the news coverage, you know, corruption case with the prime minister gets front page attention this week. I don't know. It could be a coincidence. Maybe not. Uh, what can you tell us about what was, in fact, discovered and disclosed this week about what's happening up north? How extensive is this tunnel operation by Hezbollah? So this is uh, this takes a little bit of explanation because it's it's um, a, a very complex and, and uh, I think with far reaching implications. The fact is that that this. These tunnels have may have been worked on for two years. That they were, there are at least three now that have been publicly have been identified. Two, two uh, more assertively than the reports of a third. Uh, the one that uh, was.
pictures that we've seen was between Miskabam and um, uh, that what well, was right by Miskabam and came um, and, and was meant to be a vehicle for a surprise attack inside the cities, inside Ma'alot, inside Miskabam, inside other places along the border as a quote, they intended it to be a surprise retaliation, and the goal was to kill as many civilians as uh, as possible. And the, the the nature of these tunnels are they're very sophisticated. They were eighty feet underground. Wow! You know what it, it takes, and they had a bore through uh, rock. It's unlike Gaza, which is sand. There's um, they had a bore through rock, which means they were bringing in heavy equipment. Israel was monitoring it the whole time. Do we know the length of the tunnels? So, uh, 400 feet, but, uh, mm-hmm. and some extended 30 or 40 feet into Israel. And the, um, I mean, obviously, you know, this is also Iran and others' uh, involvement, but this was Hezbollah's operation. They brought in heavy equipment, so the question is where they got the uh, heavy uh, equipment from. And uh, in Rasnia was the second one. Uh, some of them start in a house. You know, they dig under a house, and they were hoping that they had the element of surprise. In another case, I think they, they dug under, or it started in a cement factory, which is why they could bring the heavy equipment, because it looked like they were working on um, the uh, cement factory. It's interesting that the Russian troops have been helping to stop it. Unithal has been put on the spot. They they did not do them anything. This is their job. They're supposed to prevent any presence across the border. Uh, and for them to have the excuse of saying they didn't know is not acceptable. Israel also revealed this week that they that only a few dozen of the 130,000 missiles will have the precision guidance systems so far because of Israel's interventions. And Iran traditionally would fly stuff to Damascus and then drive it across the border. Israel interceded so now they're doing more direct flights to beirut of of equipment um and uh, uh using the uh, because the land route has become uh, more complicated this changes the whole situation vis-a-vis lebanon as you know in the past uh, the israel was very restricted in how much of the infrastructure of lebanon directly they could hit now that those restrictions are off because hezbollah is part of the government mm. and uh, you know, you can actually see videos of, of uh, the operatives caught inside the government and the the operation, uh, I think, northern border is, has been going on where they have to cross the border in order to to eradicate the, these uh, um, tunnels, which is a precursor perhaps to actions against the 130,000 missiles that are uh, sitting in, in Lebanon. Uh, many of them longer-range missiles, which enables them to target, speci- and with the guidance systems, they can target specific things like Ben-Gurion or Demona or uh, other you know, key targets for them. And, and interesting that Russia and the U.S., of course, but some others have come out and backed Israel's right to go across the border. This is a violation of, of Israel's sovereignty. There's no doubt they crossed an international border there to, to carry out this attack. It, it is significant in showing the resources that uh, Hezbollah has and their determination. Uh, obviously, for the people in southern Lebanon, 
every third house has a, a, a missile or some sort of a Hezbollah military uh, significance, you know, that they place the missiles and they have a bedroom, a living room, a dining room, and a missile room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the people of, of Lebanon more likely had to know uh, what was going on or, or knew a good deal about what is going on. What's so the status of the question? And my, my point is that it's not a question that these are civilians and uninterested in whatever Israel has to do to retaliate will, you know, will of course get condemned right. uh, by a part of the world, but understand the circumstances they're operating. The status of the tunnels this moment, they're destroyed, flooded, what are they right now? Well, well the one, uh, and that's what I started in describing how sophisticated they are. Yeah. You know, you have communication systems, electricity, they're reinforced, they're, they are... Uh, complicated. So Israel is now working on how to destroy them. They've given warning to everybody to stay away from it, but they're calling on the UNIFIL and the, and, uh, the Lebanese to destroy the other tunnel and say it's their responsibility, which it is, and I think an important uh, statement because you know you place, put the onus where it is, so later on they don't have any excuses and say that they, they had nothing to do with it. Right. And um, uh, you know, this is this is only the first chapter. I'm afraid in in all of this, we saw Iran testing a missile capable of carrying uh, multiple warheads. And when the United Nations Security Council met this week, yesterday, yesterday I believe, they they couldn't pass a resolution uh, condemning them. And the the you know they put it off, and they, they no matter how watered down it becomes, they still can't get it through. So, you know, it, it, again portrays the U.N. for what it really is. Is it Israel who writes the next chapter? Is it the Israel who has to decide if they're going in or not going in at this point? Israel, yes. And I think that that's why I'm giving a lot of this background, just to anticipate uh, possible outcomes. Uh, you know, the Army tried to keep this ultra-secret on its side, but so did, um, uh, even when they initiated the operation, they tried to keep it even from some, from many, most of the people in the IDF, uh, and when they had discovered it, they kept it uh, quiet. That only a few uh, people knew, and the, the, they brought in experts and others to uh, to, to uh, uh, follow it. So, you know, they also had to keep the people in Metula and Miskabam and th- those other areas uh, along the border uh, uh, without panicking them and you know, creating too much uh, discussion. So it had to be done very discreetly and carefully. Yeah, I guess when the people in the South hear about tunnels, they're used to that already, <laughs> and they've grown to uh, to uh, live with it. Well, so far, Israel destroyed 17 tunnels near Gaza, but again, the technology is different. Right. But uh, the message, and you know, we know that, and I discussed on the show for years about their attempts to penetrate the border and IRGC being up there and setting up the, the Iran Revolutionary Guard and the... Um, uh, observation posts and donning the uniforms of the Syrian army in order to give them cover as they uh, move into these areas. It's, uh, you know, this is, uh, Israel unfortunately is put in a very difficult position and thought that because the Lebanese border might be uh, more difficult to penetrate and to be able to ca- uh, carry it out, they uh, they they still do it. And you saw that, that uh, I think it was last Friday, they issued a, a warning video to Israel, Hezbollah, and with satellite images with precise maps of strategic sites in Israel and said, if you attack, you will regret it. And the, uh, the video was posted after supposedly Israel hit some Iranian.
and Hezbollah targets in Syria the night before. Uh, you've told us in past weeks about the uh, presence of the IDF up north, uh, really to remind us that uh, you know there's more activity or more potential activity up there than we think, and there's more uh, you know men and women of the IDF up there than we think. We should keep them in mind. Uh, does this week reflect even more of that because of the discovery up north? Uh, does the IDF presence reflect that there's a, a lot more activity up there? There is, and they they know that there were other attempts. We don't know, you know, how many tunnels were started in Lebanon and not crossed the border. Israel has new seismic detection equipment and other things to be able to tell. And people say, well, why don't they hear it? Don't they see it? Because when it's 80 feet underground across a border, it's hard to know it. Yeah. But as I said, they they followed it for a long time. They wanted to know what the you know where the what the intention was, what the, and now they have the full plans. They, they've captured the, the full documents about their tunnel strategy, and I, I think this is not the end of the action uh, along the border. So there's no question that there are members of the IDF who thought they'd be spending Hanukkah with family who are now on the northern border. Oh, yes, we've, they've increased the presence along the border, both to give people a sense of comfort about you know their own security, the people living on the border areas, uh, but also because they have now to, to keep a constant vigil against attempts to cross. And the prime minister and his, I guess, you know, cabinet or security cabinet or inner cabinet, I assume, is going to have to make a decision rather quickly about how to proceed. Well, it, as I said, they've known about it for a long time. So right. this, this discussion has been ongoing. Right, understood. But so now that they're pretty well prepared for, but for, now what decisions they want to take. Right, now that it's public, and as you alluded to, the you know the citizens up north are aware of what's going on, there may be a lot more pressure to act. So, Oh, yes, yeah. of course. You know, when you think of the horror of what, what yeah. it means that this thing, they can, they can walk into Metula and, and kidnap people. And, <sighs> I mean, and again, it's not a military operation. It's meant to attack civilians. Right. Scary to say the least. Um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to risk not doing this story. So I, I know there's a lot to discuss, but we we have to mention, especially I, I believe now during this holiday, the UN General Assembly in New York Friday in a 148 to 11 vote with 14 abstentions approved a resolution that disavowed Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem. A second resolution passed 156 to eight spoke of Judaism's most holy site, the Temple Mount, solely by its Muslim name of Al-Haram Al-Sharif. The European Union supported both texts, while the U.S., Canada, and Australia voted no. Now, I know we've seen this before, right, the Jewish ties and Jewish connection, etc. We've seen these types of votes before, but especially because it happened during this holiday, it seemed even more absurd to us. Anything different about this one, or this is just par for the course? these these 
wanted to pay attention, uh, kept hammering away about the significance of these UN votes, where they changed the names of the of the holy places first, hyphenating them, and then removing the, the Jewish names and and Christian traditional names for the our holiest sites. And you see it now that the UN resolutions do not mention the Kotel. They talk about Al Barak's wall. They talk about Hamar Sharif. They don't talk about the Temple Mount. And and uh, these things have longer term consequences too. And the the very fact that this this could happen and and what shocks me is that you don't see any outcry from the Christian world or any and too much of the Jewish world just accepts this when they are cutting us off from our past because they will say, look, the overwhelming majority of the UN voted for this. You guys have no right here. You have no right to be there. You have no right to build there. You have no right to visit there. And and you know, Agadish Baruch keeps sending us reminders. He just finds us the Becca, the wait from the and and now more that we'll talk about in the future, some of the new discoveries. Every one of them reaffirming the message. And here the United Nations votes. Uh, they can't pass a vote against Hamas, but they can pass by these overwhelming majorities, these anti-Israel uh, measures. <laughs> I think people are tired of it. I know ambassadors are tired of it. Many of them just vote automatically with non-aligned movements. And, the, you know, the, the, a lot of them uh, just follow certain other countries, sometimes the EU, sometimes others. And we have to just keep keep pressing um to, to reduce the majority, but I think it highlights the irrelevance and the the danger of the UN and the, the fact that Israel can't get a, a fair hearing uh, there. And um, when you say keep pressing, that's that's everybody has to keep pressing. And I mentioned that because uh, we know that it's the one year anniversary since the declaration by uh, Prime Minister, by uh, President Trump about the uh, Israeli embassy and recognizing uh, Jerusalem as the eternal capital and, and the capital of Israel. And frankly, we know that there's a constituency to whom, aside from the Jewish community, to whom uh, that declaration is, was extremely important. So we should not rest on our laurels and think that the president is reacting to what we are doing. We should remember that no matter what uh, the reason is that he's uh, gone ahead and taken this action, we must keep the pressure on not just, uh, I mean, obviously not uh, in reference to Washington at this point, uh, because of uh, the, you know, the White House has been very, uh, has been very proactive when it's come to Jerusalem. Uh, but in general, if we don't, uh, if we as a community do not take action and put the pressure on our elected officials, those who represent uh, at the United Nations, etc., then we only have ourselves to blame. And I say this in the context of what you said earlier when President Bush, uh, who's no longer with us, said to you directly that, you know, I don't hear anything about this. So you as a Jewish leader may be important to you, but unless we hear from the constituents, unless we hear from the listeners of these conversations, then to us it's irrelevant. And and the yeah, it's a, it's a opening up a, a very important subject that has um, much longer term uh, implications. But you know, people who deal with ambassadors, people who have business abroad, raising these issues um, makes a difference. Keeping the pressure on makes a difference because it, it, we can erode. Many of them just feel many ambassadors feel uncomfortable about it. They go, they get an instruction, or because of other things. You see, even in the Arab world, there's a shift on on a lot of these uh, these issues. But the the knee jerk reaction um, dictates what uh, what what they do. And the UN is just a, a form for it. Look, we, we're seeing it in the battle on BDS in our own country. Um, the fact that we have that incident in Temple University that we have in Massachusetts and Vermont. Uh, 
police departments under pressure, cutting off, uh, allowing their um, policemen to participate in, in these defense and in, in security sessions that Israel uh, does for, for police departments all over the world and, and from the United States who travel there and uh, work together, and there's a lot of cooperation. But on, on one hand, Chile, the national controller, put out an order this week that uh, that all it's illegal for cities to participate in BDS. And the um, after one city did adopt a PDS, uh, a BDS um, position, and, and the, at the same time, France gave a financial reward to a BDS group with uh, ties to the PFLP, the you know, Palestinian Front for the Liberation, uh, uh, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, that the Irish passed this bill, which is now going to the lower house, but it's the most extreme measure, which prohibits even uh, either importing or exporting any item from produced in, 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 uh, in Judea, Samaria, I think East Jerusalem, and the Golan. And who are they punishing? They're punishing for the Palestinians who work in these places. It has been proven over and over again. But the extreme nature of of this uh, uh, statement and the penalties that are imposed uh, for it, and the fact that it passes the the upper house and and the language and the accusations that accompanied the the debate, uh, were frankly quite disgusting. And the you know there were going to have to be consequences. We have to stand up just as we do with Airbnb and yep. continue to let them know that we'll, no people will not use their services anymore, that they will not participate in com- companies that um, participate in the boycott. It's it's not the financial implication because it's, it's not that great. In, in uh, There are like 100 listings, I think, in Judea and Samaria and the West Bank, in, in the Jewish West Bank areas. And uh, but it is the precedent that it sets, and that other companies will follow. And Airbnb is planning a public offering in in the spring. They're going to know that 26 states are not going to be able to participate, and then many others will will companies and others will will have. We, we should press to let them know that they will not do business anymore with Airbnb because there are alternatives that you can use uh, if they participate in the boycott. I do think they want to get out of this. I think that. They're finding themselves in a having put themselves uh, out on a, on a very far out on a limb, hmm. and uh, we'll be very happy to give them a chance to find a way to to climb back uh, off of it. We know that Saeed Barakat himself pressured them. We know that right. the, these leftist groups, and they are taking great uh, joy in this. Uh, this and then when you see some of the groups, including JSU and others, coming out and saying. Uh, almost supporting them and their right to do the, these things when it's a purely discriminatory and they don't like the accusation that it's anti-Semitic. I don't know if their intent was to be anti-Semitic. I don't know how much they even understand of the implications of, of their action, but its net impact is that it's a discriminatory measure singling out Jewish communities from all of the disputed territories in the world and all the places which engage in the most horrific practices you see the uh, war, uh, charges about war crimes were, are being brought against um, uh, Iran about what they've done to journalists, what Turkey has done to, to journalists, and I say single them out because of the Kajoji case, but it's true of, of many of their popular, of much of their populations who have been targeted, and yet nobody talks about barring trade with them. Yep. 
All right, lots of issues to discuss. I take this opportunity to wish you a very happy uh, Shabbat Chanukah Rosh Chodesh, and we'll speak Bezrat Hashem next week. Uh, have a friendly Hanukkah, a great Chodesh, and a Shabbat Shalom. Certainly, let's have a peaceful and wonderful Shabbat. Everybody enjoy it with family and friends. It's incredible and unique Shabbat. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update Fridays here at JM in the AM.